At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In 2019, the first Strange Realities Conference took place in Nashville, Tennessee. The pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event. Now, for 2021, the third annual Strange Realities Conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event, live in person in Nashville and streaming online. Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal. Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Ascath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Raines, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P.D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Ren Collier. Tickets available at StrangeRealitiesConference.com. It's going to be amazing. All right, guys. Welcome to Conspiranormal. Uh, we are rapidly approaching the date of the Strange Realities Conference of October 15th through the 17th. And we are trying to cover and get all the guests that we possibly can get on from uh, for the Strange Realities Conference. Everybody that's going to be presenting, uh, we eventually have everybody on. But uh, we've got two more for you guys tonight. We've got Tim Banal. Yo, what's going on, everybody? Uh, well, not much. What's up, Tim? And uh, Brent Rains is here with us as well. Hey, everybody. <laughs> And Chris Corey is sitting in with us to, uh, again tonight. Serfiel is uh, running a little bit late, but he should be here momentarily. And uh, Tim, we were talked about last week, a uh, private conversation about uh, getting you on to talk about a trip that you took. Yeah, yeah. I went up to uh, the Lake, uh, Lake Champlain Valley, Champlain Valley, I think it's called, uh, essentially the Adirondacks. Um which is sort of like a little sliver. Uh, well, there's a big lake for people who don't know. Um, there's a giant lake called Lake Champlain. It's like constitutes the border between New York state and Vermont. Uh, and they have allegedly uh, a lake monster there, like America's Loch Ness monster, essentially. <coughs> um, so uh, I was, I was kind of sitting around like the end of July um, and I heard, heard about this event called, uh, champ day. Cause it's called champ, uh, champ, Lake Champlain monster is called champ. 
Yeah. Um, so I found out they have this like big festival. And uh, so I was like, well, you know, it's only like four hours away, which is just about my limit on a road trip. Um, and I was like, well, I'm going to I'm going to go check it out. So I decided to uh, drive up to Champ Day. This is like uh, two weeks ago or so, first weekend in August. Um, and uh, it was a it was a trip. It was cool. It was a lot of fun. I saw a lot of different things that uh, became about much more than Champ Day. Let me put it that way. Um, so essentially, like the route up from Boston, it takes you you know, up through New Hampshire and then through all the way through Vermont. Uh, then you cross over to the border of New York. You kind of like skirt up the side of the New York border. And uh, I was looking at the GPS and I'm like, oh, holy shit. Uh, I'm going, I'm going to go through Whitehall, which is like the Bigfoot capital of New York. Right. Yeah. 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 And a few years ago, they named um, Bigfoot like their official animal. So I'm like, well, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to pull off here and check out this, this Bigfoot town that I've written about for coast to coast. Um, uh, I actually written about this thing, essentially this like stoneworks place in town, um, built this giant metal commissioned like this giant metal Bigfoot, like an, an enormous metal Bigfoot. There's pictures of me with it on my Facebook page. And so, uh, I knew I knew of that. So I'm like, let me just go and at least see the giant metal Bigfoot. Um, and so I did. And I got kind of checked it out, walked around a little bit around Whitehall. Um, I didn't really see enough of it to give it uh, any sort of, um, you know, feedback, let's say. Uh, it seemed like a nice town. Um, they're having another they're, they're having a Bigfoot festival at the end of September. Uh, so I'm probably actually going to go back to Whitehall, uh, like in about a month, it's on September 25th. So, um, I'm probably gonna end up doing this trip again at the end of September. So I enjoyed it so much, but so I walked, I, I saw around Whitehall and there's like Bigfoot, uh, statues in different places and stuff like that. Um, and like Bigfoot, um, you know, trinkets and shit you can get. And like, I went into the place that has the giant statue and they have, Bigfoot shirts and Bigfoot maps with Bigfoot sightings there and everything. So that was pretty cool. And um, then, you know, like as I'm driving out of Whitehall through these mountains in the Lake Champlain uh, Valley, I'm kind of looking around because it's like, I don't, except, except for when we went, Adam, when we were in Georgia at the Bigfoot Museum, like I didn't even think of it till later. Like that was Bigfoot country, right? Mm-hmm. Like this was Bigfoot country. And it was like, this is probably the longest I've ever been in. Like I'm looking around. I'm like, I could like Bigfoot could definitely live here. Um, there's these giant mountains with just covered in trees. Um, and they're huge. They're enormous. And the, and the wilderness there is vast. So I'm like, yeah, I could definitely I, like, you know, if you assume Bigfoot's real and exists, I don't see why it couldn't be hanging around in this area. Um, it was so vast and undeveloped. So that was, that was pretty neat. Then I, my headquarters for the weekend was in Ticonderoga, which is famous for having this fort from the revolutionary war. Um, but then what was interesting there is it's kind of like, 
I liked Ticonderoga. I don't want to um, crap on it or anything, but it was like, it seemed like a little bit kind of, it seemed better days, I guess you'd say. Um, it seemed a little kind of down in the dumps. It was sort of uh, kind of put two and two together by the time I left. And I talked to local people who echoed this, so I'm not like just sort of talking out of my ass, but the it was the quintessential stereotypical town that like a Walmart moves in and wipes everything out. Um, right. <laughs> because they just have a giant Walmart. I uh, know. And, and all the local stuff pretty much shut down. Like, and the locals were saying like, as soon as the Walmart came in like 20 years ago, they put all the, all the mom and pop places out of business. So it was kind of, it was a little bit depressing like that, but the really wild part was like, I go down to the downtown and the downtown's like really kind of like their main strip. It's just kind of, there's nothing happening, you know? Um, and not a very exciting place, huh? No, no, not, not very exciting. There was some fun stuff. Like there was a really cool, majestic, like mini golf thing there. And, um, they had some nice, some really nice picturesque parts of the town, but the, the main, the main street was like a bookshop that was closed. This was like a Friday afternoon, like at three. So it was like, it should have been open, like a bookshop that was closed, an antique shop. You know, a realtor, one, a bar, which I went into and had a couple of drinks and um, was kind of getting the lay of the land there and everything. But the crazy part, I knew this was in Ticonderoga when I got there, but I didn't realize I, I thought I was going to have to find, look for it. But it turned out that it found me because like I parked my car um, in right on Main Street. And I get out of my car and I look up and right there over my head is this giant fucking uh, Star Trek logo mm-hmm. and and the deal is that in ticonderoga is uh this insanely awesome uh museum where the owner of the museum has fastidiously recreated all of these sets to scale for the original star trek series um and like every different set you could imagine from the show now i'm not a big star trek fan but um, I kind of felt like, look, wh- when am I ever going to be in, you know, in Ticonderoga again, much less be, be here on a Friday afternoon with nothing to do. And there's this giant Star Trek museum. So let me just I'm going to just go. And I told Aaron Golius and Jason Offit, my friends about it before I left. And they were like, oh, shit, I wish I could go. I wish I could check that out. So I'm like, all right. You know, I got, I kind of owe it. I can't just go, oh, hey, there's the Star Trek museum here. Um, you know, and then it's like, here's a picture of me in front of it. And then they're like, well, why didn't you go in? It's like, well, you kind of have to fucking go in. So I went in, cost like 25 bucks. Um, it was pretty awesome. It was pretty crazy. The joke, I guess, in Ticonderoga is you can go from the 17th century to the 23rd century in a block. That's, the, that's what they say. So it was like, it's hard to explain, but everything in the town was like kind of felt like it was really like in the 1950s. Then you get into this museum and it's like you were locked into like the lobby of an AMC movie theater. Like everything was like super clean, super nice carpeted, like all the, you know, not a, not a single light bulb was out. That kind of thing. It was like, they must have somebody who goes around dusts the place like every, every morning or something. It was like, it was gorgeous. So uh, I go in there it's pretty crazy. If you like Star Trek, you would absolutely love it. 
Um, I don't even know anything about Star Trek. So I was just kind of like, this is just a weird museum. But like the thing is, is the guy is like so obsessed with this museum, with this concept that like everything, like every set is made exactly how they made the TV show. So he's just a fan. He does like, there's no other reason for it to be there other than this guy just really loves Star Trek. Yeah. He's, he's like, a, it gets weirder. He, this was like really the highlight of the trip. Cause it was just so weird. Right. Yeah. It's even weirder than champ or the beast of Whitehall. Right. 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 It was, yeah, it was like, okay, this is, this is, I didn't see this coming. So he's a world renowned as if, as if running the Star Trek museum wasn't enough. He's a world renowned Elvis impersonator. <laughs> and i saw him and he's got like the big sideburns and shit so he's nice. like legit, legit elvis impersonator um and so he just loves star trek so he made this this museum and like the example i can make is like so like on the show all the like different buttons and shit like the girl who was giving us the tour uh the young lady who was giving us the tour she explained like okay well these aren't the actual buttons but like the buttons we use came from like, I don't know, you know, aircraft from 1950s, like from, from Korea, right? So all the show used the buttons from aircraft from 1950 Korea. So the guy went out and somehow got the same buttons to use in the same spots. So like everything, oh. that, yeah. So like every little detail of the set was like perfectly recreated. That's how to, I guess, Somebody was telling me like once he, he one of the sets was just like a like a foot off and he like tore it all down and rebuilt it and shit. It's like that fastidiously put together. Um, and it was just funny because like I don't know I don't really you know I don't I'm not a Star Trek fan so it was like the there's shit everywhere there's all kinds of Easter eggs like hidden in, in the different sets and it's like I don't know what these any of this shit means so I'm sure people go there and they're like oh my god that's the dagger from episode. Fucking one, you know, two thirty-five, you know, Kirk versus the versus the, the sloth piece or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like talking to the girl giving the tour, and I'm just like, "What's with the dagger there on the desk?" And she's like, "Oh, that's. Oh, I'm glad you asked. That's the dagger from episode two thirty-two, Kirk versus the sloth beast. and kind of tells me the story. And like, uh, it was just, it was fun. It was just kind of like there was an almost a weird like adorableness to it where was just kind of like these people really love star trek they're really into it um and there was no one there it was like four o'clock at this point i had to wait till like four or five to take the tour because i don't know why they like only do them every hour even though like i was the only one there so it was literally me the girl giving the tour and uh, oh, oh i keep saying girl i apologize young lady any any anyone younger than me is <laughs> and i always just call a girl um Right. The young lady giving the tour, uh, me and like another young lady shadowing her. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. Tra training at the uh, Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, I want to be like, come in uh, from outside the room and stop watching us in the room while she's giving the tour. Just participate in the experience if you're, you know, or whatever. Um, so that was the deal. And then like she did, it's the same. They're just like this. They have such reverence for this shit. And it was just so funny. But like, like I said, it was like adorable. Cause like this, that thing, there's a picture of me on my Facebook of me on the beam me up thing. I don't know what even what it's called. See, I'm like, a, I'm like a blasphemer, but on the beam me up thing, the Porta deck or whatever. And in the background, there's like this box thing. And she's like, that box 
is the actual box from episode 522. Amazing. Box of Doom. And it's like. Amazing. You can go up and you can get your picture taken on the hollow deck. Bring me up thing. It's like, but please do not touch the box. You can't go. Don't go anywhere near the box. Don't touch the box. Um, so I'm like, all right, I won't touch your fucking artifact from, from the actual Star Trek. So there's a picture, you know, you can kind of like cosplay in the different rooms. Um, like you can get on the Porta thing. You can sit behind the doctor guy's desk. I didn't do that one. Um, and the big, the big payoff, it all builds up. It culminates with the deck thing, you know, whatever the, whatever that's called. Or is it, is it the, the deck? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You're, right. You're right. Where right. Captain Kirk sits. Yeah. And I'm like, the I'm bridge. like the bridge, the bridge. Yeah. So it culminates with an absolutely, you can see the picture on my Facebook, an absolutely perfect picture, perfect to the, to the tiniest detail, uh, recreation of the, of the, of the bridge. And they let you sit in the captain's chair. And if you look at the picture of me in the captain's chair, this is how just like a wood, it's like a desk chair. There's like wooden, there's wooden armrests. I'm doing it now. Like you can't see me. There's like wooden armrests. They're a little closer to the body. And on the um, outside of those are like all these buttons and shit. Again, these like recreated buttons from like the 1950s. And they're like, okay, when you sit in the chair, you like delicately get in the chair. You have to like put your arms on the little wooden armrest. You cannot put your arms on the buttons. The buttons will break. She said, they will disintegrate if you put any any pressure on the buttons. So you get into the chair and then you get your picture taken and shit. And that's that's the uh, that's the whole tour. I don't know. The guys from Ticonderoga, he wanted it to be in Ticonderoga. I think he wants the, the to give the town some extra reason for people to be there. It's a huge tourist, I don't know about huge, but it's a big tourist attraction. Um, and they hold an annual Star Trek convention there at least once a year. Um, and, and, and it's going to sound like I'm, I'm not, I mean this in a genuine way. Apparently it gets pretty wild. Um, cause the bar, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Klingons hanging around. <laughs> the bar is like, like two is like, like a block away. The bar I went to first. So like I was looking later on the reviews of the, uh, restaurants and shit. And someone wrote a review on the bar and they're like, this bar is looking awesome. I went, <laughs> I went there during Star Trek Con, and William Shatner was pouring shots for everybody. So I get the impression, like after after the con is over, like all the Star Trek people go and hang out at the uh, at the bar and party and shit. So it was uh, it was pretty cool. I actually, yeah, like I said, that was probably the most most uh, just completely unexpectedly weird part of the trip. So then the next day, I went up to. Um, Fort Henry, which is like Whitehall, they're like they they have adopted Champ. And so as you're coming into town, there's a giant sign that says Port Henry, home of Champ, um, with a big like Loch Ness monster on it. It's got this giant like wooden thing that lists all like the most famous sightings of Champ, like that have ever been documented there. Um, and so the Champ Day Festival was really like it wasn't like a paranormal convention. It was like a, like just a festival. If that makes sense. This was just like, like a U, like a, like a, you got to imagine like a U of like little different tents, um, you know, of different things people were selling arts and crafts, a lot of chant merch, 
And then in one of the in one of the things was a it was called the Crypto Cave. I want to get the names of these guys on here so I can say it. But yeah, there was a Crypto Cave, and in there was uh, Paul Bartholomew, who's an absolutely wonderful guy. I love talking to him. I, I met him for the first time uh, there. Um, they were all really cool, but Paul Bartholomew was like this insanely friendly dude, and he loved the Star Trek museum. So he apparently he had heard I went there because I posted pictures, and Lauren Coleman looped him in on it. And he was talking to me all about it and shit. So uh, he was there. Kenny W. Irish, uh, Alexander Petikov, and Karak Saint Laurent. Um, so they they had like a little booth, and they pretty much, you know, just talked to locals about creatures and shit. So, yeah. Did you hear any good stories about Champ? Anybody tell you anything about uh, Champ sightings? Not really. No. It was very, it's hard to explain. There wasn't anybody there like, like, <coughs> those guys were there and they would tell you about Champ, but there was no like formal thing where anyone came around like, hey, everybody, welcome to Champ Day. We're here to celebrate Champ. Here's the story of Champ. It was just like everybody was in the know. Everybody knew, okay, we're here to celebrate <coughs> the lake monster that, that lives in the giant lake. And uh, so that was it. And then around the corner was um, another friend of mine. Um, we're, uh, I'm terrible with names tonight. Uh, Katie Elizabeth. She's like the preeminent champ researcher. So she, uh-huh. she I don't want to get into all the details of what, why this is, but she was separate from champ day. And she had her own thing called Champ Fest that was like right around the corner. It was essentially just she had a little booth of her own, and she has a, she has a boat. She's she's wild. I gotta take my hat off to her. Like uh, she's putting in the work. She has a boat that has like all kinds of shit, sonar and all that. A remote control underwater vehicle that she showed me that uh-huh. I have a picture of that like she can control with her phone. Um, that they dump into Lake Champlain to like look for the monster. She goes out like two or three times a week looking for uh, lake monster. She's got like sonar pictures and stuff that she thinks might be the lake monster and stuff like that. So it was, that was pretty informative. It was pretty cool. Um, you know, were there any skeptic lake monster skeptics there? No, I didn't see any skeptics. No, no, yeah. no. Everybody was like, yeah, it's champ, champ day, champ day. Um, I mean, I'm sure, like, uh, the guys in the crypto cave, I think they probably got inundated with stories from people. I didn't have any stories. And Paul Bartholomew, he lives in Whitehall, the Bigfoot capital. So he was like, oh, you went through Whitehall. I'm like, yeah. And then he would start telling me all kinds of crazy stories about Bigfoot sightings and shit in Whitehall and, like, UFO sightings nearby. He was, like, a wealth of information and shit. So total sweetheart, Paul Bartholomew. And just was like, yeah, you, you know, just tell me crazy ufo stories and stuff i can't remember them off the top of my head i was just kind of sitting there like whoa shit really what what you know like that kind of like i think he said like a bigfoot that ran across the highway like in three steps uh-huh like holy shit you know like yeah, what similar mean? stories to what we heard in uh georgia yeah earlier. exactly yeah. yeah yeah so that was about it yeah when i came back and uh came i don't think i did anything really paranormal after that no no just came up back to uh, Vermont and came home. So it was an interesting experience. Uh, I got the impression that these towns kind of like, they've kind of embraced these creatures, you know, not 
I don't want to say like as a marketing thing, but kind of as a marketing thing where yeah, it's like, Hey, you know, we, what else we got going on? We'll be, we'll be the home of champ. So, well, they know that the weird brings people out and that's like the, the best thing that they have. It's something weird and strange in their, in their neighborhood or their area. Yeah. So that was the trip. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was, I didn't expect to go through like Bigfoot country. Like, a, I don't know what it is about that place up there. It was like, you know, within like a half hour, it's like you get the Bigfoot and you got the champ. It's like, oh, this must be kind of like a little, you know, I don't know if it's one of those window zones or if it's just like, it's sort of a, it's not as populated. So maybe they have more, more possibilities for creatures and shit. I don't know, but it was interesting. I'd never been up in the, that part of, uh, you know, of the, of the, of America, I guess you could say. So it was cool. Yeah. I'd that's, highly recommend it. If people that's want really to cool too. To so that's in your backyard too. Really? So yeah. Four hours. It's not that uh, bad. No, not at all. Brent, you're from that part of the country. You, you, have you heard of those couple of things? The beast of Whitehall and, uh, you wanted to say the star Trek. Museum. I know you did. <laughs> and the star Trek museum. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've heard of the, uh, star Trek museum. I, I went, Years ago, as as uh, as a boy, to uh, Fort Ticonderoga, but of course they didn't have the Star Trek Museum at the time. But uh, I've been across the Lake Champlain, and uh, I remember hearing the stories. But I looked for it, but I didn't see it, unfortunately, as as usually happens to me. But uh, it's intriguing, um, and uh, I'd kind of like to uh, go up there and and meet some of the the people involved and. That must have been quite a quite an experience to be at that festival and, and hear all them stories. Yeah, it was cool. I could say the one takeaway, I posted a picture of Lake Champlain, someone and there was like someone, I don't know, on the water or whatever. And they're like, is that someone on Facebook was like, Is that is that the monster? And it was like, I could honestly say, like, standing on the beach, it's like impossible. Like everything kind of looks weird. You know what I mean? Like a wave. You're not even sure. Like, I think you have to be out on the water in order to really know if you're seeing a creature or something. Like now, after that experience, I see these, and I write about them for Coast Coast. I mean, I cover Loch Ness Monster Sightings. So I, but like, I, I can kind of see now, if I was on the shore of Loch Ness, I'm sure it'd be like the same thing. Like you can't, you're looking out on that water and you see like a little disturbance. It's like, you don't know what, you can't really tell what that is. You know, like I was I kept looking out on the water. I'm like, I don't know. I can't tell if that if that's weird or if that's just a wave. Like, I can't I can't tell. So that was kind of an interesting experience in that regard. Like how anyone would know from the shore that they were looking at a sea monster is is um, beyond me. Right. Yeah. I remember. Uh, oh, back in the 70s, uh, there was a uh, sighting down in the St. John River down by Jacksonville sea. The river goes into the ocean there by, by Mayport. And uh, I was in the Navy and stationed at, at Mayport. My ship was uh, back in, back in 73 and 74. And so I, uh, I, you know, went back in 75 to investigate some of the activity there in, in that area and other parts of Florida, like Brooksville. And uh, anyway, there was a sighting that was in the paper, which I followed up on and talked to a couple of the, the witnesses. There were five people in a, a fishing boat out on the St. John's River, and they claimed that uh, this thing with humps on its back came up and raised its head up about 
by their uh, boat about uh, three feet, and it had kind of like horns on its head, kind of snail-like looking. And uh, that was pretty close to them. They It really got their attention. Yeah. And uh, that's the way I'd like to see it, I guess. Uh, or maybe from a fishing dock. I don't know if I'd want to be on the boat. I might get overturned. <laughs> yeah. You definitely have to be, like, out on the water. Like, you can't just from the shore. I just think it's impossible. Unless you have, like, super – unless you have binoculars – I guess people go a lot less than we use binoculars and look in the water, but it's like eyesight just on the shore. No way. There's just no way you can tell. Like, a, like I said, a wave looks weird from way from like way, way out, like two football fields away. If you see a little wave come up, it's like, Oh shit, was that it? Then it's like, no, that's a wave. <laughs> that was just a wave, dude. Like I, now that I've seen it 15 fucking times, <laughs> like, it's not that it's clearly not the monster. It's kind of like staring in a TV static too, or something, because it's just this like noise, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was exactly like that. Um, but driving up through uh, Whitehall, like like I said about the about it being Bigfoot country, yeah. I just there was a part of me that was just like, well, I could kind of expect. I could, I wouldn't be like I'd be surprised. I mean, but. I, I wouldn't be like completely shocked if like a Bigfoot ran out across the road. You know what I mean? I was kind of on edge driving up. They're like, all right, maybe I don't fucking, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that'll, maybe that could happen. So, but when I was talking to Paul Bartholomew, he said, um, most of the sightings like happen like at night and there's no, if anyone's ever driven around like in Vermont or this area, just, they're just like desolate roads. There's no streetlights or anything. So if you were driving down the road and a Bigfoot ran, like you, it would probably be like, like less than 10 seconds. You know what I mean? You wouldn't even be able to grab a camera to like film it. It would just be like some thing just ran across the road on two feet. And you're like, what was that thing? That, I think that's the extent of the Bigfoot sightings. You know, I don't think you get much longer than, uh, yeah, maybe like, I would have to say less than a minute. How long does it take an animal to run across the road? Yeah, yeah it, wouldn't it wouldn't be very long. long. Often you see yeah, you see a two a bipedal thing run across the road in three steps. It's like, all right, I think I think that might have been a big one, but I never I didn't drive around at night at the top up there, so I didn't see any Bigfoot. Brent, what have you been working on lately? I know you got you've had the time to travel yourself as well. Yeah, I went on a vacation down in uh, Clearwater Beach, Florida, uh, first week in in August this month and, uh, you know, with the family had a good time and I got to, uh, uh, meet one day on the, on the fifth Thursday with, uh, um, a couple of people I've interviewed by Skype and corresponded with some over the internet, uh, but hadn't met until, till that day. And, uh, uh, one was, uh, Bob Davis, who's the sensory, neuroscientist uh, worked with the dr edgar mitchell foundation for you know research into uh, et type encounters and uh, then i also got to meet nancy dutuchry who uh, is a uh, former litigation attorney from uh, new york and just recently moved to florida from uh, new jersey she wrote a book called how to talk to an alien and she's had a number of, uh, as well as bob of of ufo and paranormal type experiences and worked on a lot of uh different cases and and uh working out the theories and everything so it was it was pretty interesting to be able to sit down and 
have about four hours to, you know, chat with them. Um, and, uh, so, um, and just before I went there, synchronistically, I, I got this book in the mail. It was talking about somebody who had been down at Clearwater, uh, uh, some years ago and, uh, said they had seen UFOs out over the water and, uh, they, uh, felt that they were in touch. They thought that the dolphins were, <laughs> were connected with the UFOs and this guy swam out during a storm and uh, he was felt he was about to drown. His girlfriend was watching with binoculars from, from the apartment, I think up on the second uh, floor of this uh, building and uh, said there were dolphins appearing around him and he felt the dolphins gave him energy and, and, and allowed him to have enough strength to get back to shore after pulling a, a crazy stunt like that. But uh, Anyway, because um, uh, that was some years ago, the guys passed on, and and nobody uh, seemed to come forth with any stories like that while I was there. Uh, some of the family did see some dolphins, though, um, but no contact on it. But anyway, it's kind of interesting. Uh, maybe that's something to look into: dolphins and UFOs. <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, John Lilly would say so. Yeah, yeah. Um, that book that I got mentioned John William uh, a number of times. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, high strange crossover uh, aspects to close encounters and, and people who claim to have had contact. So that's, that's been something I've been quite interested in and following up on. And so it was good to uh, get with Nancy and Bob to uh, talk with them about some of this and, uh, I, uh, you know, it's a lot of these encounters seem to incorporate uh, at some point, you know, the the paranormal. You kind of wonder sometimes if some of these are kind of like a visionary experience, uh, not just a physical, but maybe even apparitional. I know when I corresponded with Keel back in my teenage years, uh, back in 71, um, he mentioned I should study up on uh, books and things, material dealing with uh, parapsychological phenomena, apparitions, which I, I did go out and buy the book uh, by a, somebody named Terrell, who uh, had written a book entitled Apparitions. And then, of course, he suggested studying um, some of the medical literature on religious apparition phenomena. He said he felt it was really caused by a lot of the same factors, and uh, but it was just kind of a different frame of reference involved in a lot of these things. But we need to uh, take a much deeper look at, at these different phenomena and how they may be interrelated. And he had even worked with uh, several psychiatrists, and uh, back in... Uh, 73, I actually began corresponding with, with one of his psychiatrists that he would consult with, uh, Dr. Berthold Swartz. And uh, up until his passing in 2010, we had quite an extensive correspondence. I even called him to uh, up one time about a, a reported abduction case with a lot of psychic elements that had up in the state of Maine back in 75. And uh, he drove up a couple times to to look into that case and uh, we had written up uh, separate articles for the England's Flying Saucer Review, and then um, later on he put that, you know, those articles in his uh, two-volume book called UFO Dynamics 
which had a lot of cases that he had uh, been investigating since uh, Keel kind of brought him into the, the UFO field. Uh, what had happened was that in uh, 1968, uh, Dr. Swartz, who was a psychiatrist, uh, he had uh, been studying parapsychology a number of years, but on, in 1968, he decided uh, after interviewing four different people with UFO claims, uh, these sounded like pretty you know, interesting cases. One even had a poltergeist uh, claim uh, was one of the people. And so he, uh, he went ahead and wrote a, an article up for a medical journal. And then uh, lo and behold, Paul Harvey carried it, uh, the story over uh, the radio. Was and that it the rest of the story? Yeah, that was, <laughs> well, the rest of the story was when Keel contacted him and says, uh, hey, you know, we need uh, help with somebody like you. In the UFO field, we got plenty of psychic uh, cases, too. And uh, uh, Dr. Swartz originally was planning that to be his swan song, um, you know. But uh, after hearing from Keel, he uh, decided to hang in there with it and also traveled, you know, himself around different parts of the United States interviewing people and uh, took it quite seriously as well. And was especially interested in the UFO psychic interface. So, and that's where you know that's where a lot of my interest uh, has been, as you know, from reading my John Keel book and such, and our correspondence. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I had some uh, things from the latest alternate perceptions that uh, I found fascinating. Some things that you wrote. If you wanted to talk a little bit about some of them, sure. Uh, some stuff that you were looking into uh, the Joe Simonton case. Um, I know that's one that we've talked about a lot. That's the famous pancakes case. But uh, what kind of spurred you to write about that? And then was there just kind of new? Was there any new information that you kind of gleaned from that? Or well, it was uh, the fact that uh, a gentleman from up in that area who's been in the UFO field since 1965, and I remember him submitting articles to Fake Magazine, uh, uh, Richard Hyden. Um, he uh, he had sent me some clippings and stuff, and uh, and co copies of correspondence, and and so uh, I told him that I would. Uh, you know, I'd never written anything in the magazine about the Joe Simonton case, and so I thought it would be interesting to uh, to put that, you know, do an update. Um, there was the fact that there had been reported uh, that he and a neighbor later, a few months later after his initial experience of uh, encountering, you know, the landed craft outside his home and the, uh, you know, was given pancakes by one of the occupants of the craft. Yeah. Um, that uh, uh, that he had a, a second sighting and that uh, a neighbor also supposedly also saw this UFO. And um, there was also the claim that he later on that he claimed that he had actually been having continuing mental contact or something, but didn't really elaborate a whole lot. Um, huh. I'm going to have to backtrack. I, you know, he had a wife and um yeah, you talked about there was always that perception that he kind of lived alone, but that's not necessarily true. No, he had a wife, um, but uh, somewhere I got the name that her name was Mary Damsky, which I thought was pretty wild. I put that in there, mm -hmm. and, and now uh, Richard has written me back and says, well, uh, 
No, I don't remember that. You, uh, you, you didn't get that from me. So I was researching other uh, sources besides his online. And so uh, I may have to backtrack on the Mary Adamski thing. But uh, anyway, it's quite an interesting story. It's been a, a UFO classic for a long time. Of course, Dr. Heineck went, uh, went up to Wisconsin and met him. And, and uh, he had interviewed some of the other people. People generally felt that... Uh, you know, he wasn't really someone who was interested in the subject or talked about it prior to this experience. And uh, he initially thought that it was, uh, he was hearing some kind of an aircraft. And so he didn't pay any attention. And then he was eating at the time and he went to the sink and he put the dishes in the sink, looked out the window and um, saw this thing had, you know, was landing or landed uh, in his driveway and went out and then, you know, uh, saw the craft up close, communicated by gestures with one of the occupants who uh, um, he thought wanted some water. So he filled up a jug for the guy and gave him a jug of water. And in return, the guy um, gave him four pancakes. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Yeah, everything always gets overshadowed by the pancakes in that story. Yes. Yes. Did uh did Symington ever make any appearances at conventions, uh, saucer conventions, contactee events, anything like that? That's a good question. Um, I I don't think he was really that interested. Do some talks locally, and uh, but uh, yeah, I think he just pretty much went on with his life. He didn't. I know he made a statement to the press one time that. Uh, he didn't really want to talk about these, you know, the subject anymore. He'd been uh, bugged by a lot of people. Right. He, uh, he had said that if he had had another experience, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say anything, but then yet he did say it to someone later about a second sighting. So that got out, you know? Um, yeah. But he didn't, didn't say it to the press, press I, I guess. guess right. right? Uh, no, I think it was yeah. uh, something that he Mentioned to someone and it got out, but anyway, it. Uh, they didn't give him pancakes in the second sighting, did they? Uh, not that we know of. <laughs> it was uh, uh, the details are kind of skimpy um, on the second sighting. Uh, there was a mention in a uh, newspaper article, which I reproduced, that uh, that Richard had sent me, and uh, he's promised to send me some photographs that he had taken back in the '60s of the property. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm planning to come up with a, uh, a second article, all goes well to kind of present some updates on what other people are, are saying about it. But, uh, do we know what ever happened to those pancakes? Um, yeah, they were, um, they were analyzed and there was nothing really that unusual about them. Yeah, but did like whatever, but who, after they analyzed them, did they give them back to him? Like what, where, could they possibly be like in a vault somewhere <laughs> in the government or like what, uh, like what's the, what's the provenance of the, of the pancakes? Next to the Ark of the Covenant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to tap in to say he did eat one of those pancakes and he's the, I, I believe he claimed that it was uh, like very starchy or, or not, you know, too dry or something like that. 
And I, I seem to remember the analysis. There was like a basic ingredient missing from the pancake. I don't remember. Yeah, weren't they like mostly sorghum or something like that? Is what I yeah, remember. Yeah, kind of like I don't know. They sounded like really bad pancakes. <laughs> they were kind of bland. <laughs> uh, Doctor Heineck took one and had it analyzed, uh, but uh, I've I've got a breakdown of the analysis uh, in the article. But oh, I, cool. You know, it's uh, uh, I couldn't give you the recipe offhand. <laughs> to be fair someone, to the aliens, yeah, someone though, should publish you, it as a recipe. Yeah, we need that recipe. To be fair to the aliens, though, have you ever eaten just like a pancake without any syrup? It's not like that great anyway, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, like a pancake without the syrup is kind of just bland Tim, and you know. Have dry. you ever been to Cracker Barrel? Yeah, like, oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Adam, turned, barrel. Adam turned me on to the barrel. I'm a big barrel. There's a, that's right. He's a very close cracker barrel to where you'll be staying. So, And the Fiddler's Inn, right? It's such a wonderful case in that it's so bizarre. And then that he also just didn't really want to talk about anything afterwards. That's just like, it's uh, it's a great one. I mean, for sure. Yeah, I think it was local sheriff talked with him and... and- made a comment about how he was convinced that, you know, whatever the case was, uh, uh, Joe Symington really, really believed this, you know? He, and I think that was the impression of a lot of people that he really uh, didn't seem to be deceiving. I mean, whatever happened, he, he believed it, whether it was uh, objectively real or some kind of subjective experience. Yeah. It doesn't look like he benefited from it at all. Nope. No, no. All right. And you can also kind of think about it this way, where it's like if somebody has, especially like back then, like I, now it's different because like you could go viral like in a second over doing so, something stupid or having a crazy story or whatever, not even related to like the paranormal. Right. But like back then, like he might have just been like, hey, you know, this alien came, gave me a pancake or whatever. And then it just kind of takes off. And he's probably like, oh, shit. You know, I was just, I, you know, I don't want to be. I don't want to deal with this any, you know what I mean? I can imagine being kind of like that. And that kind of come, I think that Pascagoula guys were kind of like that too, where it was like, they had a crazy experience. They told the cops about it. Next thing you know, like there was swarms of UFO people there and, and the press. And they were probably just like, Oh shit. Like this happened. We don't want, we don't yeah. want to, you know, we don't, we don't want to be in the middle of this maelstrom. Like you kind of, I guess it would be like going viral back like in the fifties or sixties, seventies, something like that, where it's like, and you're probably not as used to it. Now, now if it happened to you, you'd be like, Oh shit, I've gone viral. Like I, and you would kind of have an idea how to cope with that. But I think maybe back then it would be like, it would freak you out as much as the experience. You'd be like, I don't, this is, you know, I was just telling you what happened, dude. I don't want to yeah. talk about it anymore. I don't want to go over it every day. I, I can't leave my house, like, because reporters out there all day. So, you like disrupt your whole life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and especially back then, yeah, I'm sure people got they got a lot of crap about it too from people who make fun of you and stuff. Yes, and if they weren't UFO people, I'm sure they hated UFO people, probably. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot. Most of these iconic cases, I can see why people like within the first like few weeks or whatever, probably like, I'm done, dude, I'm done. Don't ask me about what happened to me. <laughs> like get, get off my lawn or whatever. Like I'm not ever talking about this experience again. So, yeah. yeah they, they went to the police and, uh, 
they told the police about it and uh you know they had stated i understand they didn't want any publicity but then when they went to work the next day at their workplace there were a bunch of reporters <laughs> it was it was too late they were surrounded by reporters and of course now i was in florida at the time of navy and i I had some time. I, I grabbed a plane, went over there about 10 days after their experience. And, uh, Oh, you're talking about Pascagoula. Oh, talking about Pascagoula. Yeah. Pascagoula yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I went to, uh, Charles Hickson's home. I, uh, first I, you know, went to some gas station, a store and, you know, there was, uh, people would just kind of chuckle. And, and, uh, and then finally I, uh, went into a, uh, little grocery store and there was a girl at the, uh, cash register and asked her, you know, how to find any of these people. And, she just happened to be a neighbor of uh, Charles Hickson. So got directions. This guy from New Orleans, he was a ufologist. So he drove me over there. And uh, there was a, a statement on the door. Uh, you know, we don't want to talk to any of the meteor and such. And I turned around, went back to the car, and I said, well, this isn't good. But, uh, oh, well. So I went back and knocked on the door. <laughs> and this little boy came to the, the door first and I, I told him who I was and I wasn't a reporter. I was a, someone interested in the subject and uh, he turned around and talked to somebody. Turned out it was Charles Hickson and he opened the door and there he was. And I came in and, and uh, he told me a little bit, gave me a, a, a newspaper article that was uh, written about the, the incident by a local paper, which he and uh, uh, Calvin Parker got to tell their own story in their own words. And he said, this is an accurate account. So here's a copy of it. And, uh, while I was there talking with him, uh, you know, Calvin had showed up and, uh, he gave, drew me a map of how to get to the place where they'd been fishing. So that was where we headed next. And, uh, then a year later, um, lo and behold, uh, I meet Charles Hickson again in, uh, at Jacksonville beach. Uh, close to the place where I was, you know, my ship was home ported and he was going to give a talk at the library there. There was a little notice posted. So I attended that little meeting, got to see him again. And, uh, and of course he's passed away now, but he claimed to have had uh, further encounters and uh, Calvin Parker now claims, you know, he's come forward and claimed that he had, uh, you know, other experience too. That seems to be a, a motif with um, a lot of these experiencers. Like you have that one profound experience and then they have multiple experiences throughout the, really their lot, their whole lives. You find that again and again and again. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there was a time in ufology where um, if you were a repeater, it was the kiss of death. They thought you were a hoaxer or they thought you were someone who was prone to misidentifying uh, ordinary stuff, uh, Venus or, you know, regular aircraft, uh, because the thought was that having a UFO encounter was uh, strictly uh, a once-in-a-lifetime event. How come these people are having repeated encounters? And, and of course, with Bud Hopkins and uh, Whitley Strieber and, and others, the Mainstream ufology eventually started uh, taking those stories into consideration. Of course, Keel tried to present that stuff back uh, in '67, and uh, um, you know, of course, his 
his uh, particular uh, perspective wasn't one that uh, the mainstream liked because of its emphasis on just the nuts and bolts encounters. And uh, Bud Hopkins was more, his data was more uh, acceptable. So about 20 years later, it, uh, he got their attention and, and all these support groups were formed and such. And, and a lot of uh, abduction researchers rose to the occasion. I'm really curious, uh, guys, um, because Peter Robbins, um, he's you know, been defending Travis Walton lately. And uh, I'd asked Peter whether he wanted to talk about it. He said he doesn't really want to talk about it. He said what he wanted to say about it. But the, the Travis Walton stuff that's come out lately, uh, what do you guys' thoughts, feelings about that? And that just... It, it, it seems to be like a rehash of some of the old criticisms, you know, of course. I was, I mean, what the hell? Like everybody already knows where they stand on Travis Walton. Like why, why even put the time and energy into like uh, taking down this, this old man who's had a weird enough life as it is. I mean, I, I think we know why, but it, it just, it's so stupid to me. And it's so stupid that, I made the stickers just to kind of jam up the culture. You know, I made these, these, I believe Travis Walton stickers. And I I just think it's such an idiotic, uh, you know, this is me talking, not conspiracy normal. I'm sure these guys uh, have a much more refined. The views expressed on. Yeah. The views expressed here are solely mine. I, I just, why go after this guy? What are you doing? Like of all the things going on right now, uh, it just seems it seems obnoxious to me. Um, I'd say that to anybody's face. Uh, whether or not what happened to Travis is objectively the way he described it, there's no point in doing this now. It makes everybody look bad. That's my that's my piece on it. Um, you want to go, uh, Brent? Looked like you were going to say something. Or I can go. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I've met him one time. I, uh, I don't really have, um, I really, you know, it was an interesting story. Uh, I, I'm going to kind of, I guess, be on the fence about it. I mean, this, I don't, uh, I don't think that this really has already expressed anything really new. It's like a rehash of some of the things previously. And uh, I, I mean, there at this point, there are thousands of people with stories of uh, contact or abductions out there, and uh, he's just one of one that's become a very well known. And uh, you know, if you got something you want to present about it, but I, I don't, you know. I don't think, you know, if you have something new, which I don't, (laughs) like I say, I never was actually personally involved. I had a friend who did an interview with him a few years back. Um, It either is or it isn't, you know, Uh, let's just uh, move on. Unless someone comes up with something that is conclusive at this point. um, I pretty much, you know, let the guy do his thing. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Yeah, I'm kind of of the same mindset as Brent. Um, you know, uh, I never read the book. I never saw the movie. I don't have any emotional attachment. I met Travis once. He seemed like a perfectly decent person. Um, uh, but I didn't like hang out with him or anything. Um, so I have no like emotional attachment to him or his story. So I'm kind of like, okay, well, you know, this is this is one theory for what happened, you know, this, this, this skeptical take. Um, and I don't like, I, it, it, like, like Brett was kind of saying, it's like, it's just a story. It really doesn't have any, uh, it doesn't change my life one way or the other. Well, he's, whether he's telling, whether he's telling the truth or whether it was all a big hoax, um, you know, so I, I, I think maybe, people who are more connected to Travis or, or feel an emotional attachment because of the movie or something like took great uh, umbrage at, at this. And to me, it was like, Hey man, all's fair and flying saucers. If this, if people are going to come out and say that it's bo- bogus and, and, and put out their theory for why it's bogus. Like I'll listen to that too. Um, but like Brett was saying too, it's, I've had conversations with people about this this situation lately, uh, and it's like, look, at the end of the day, unless Travis himself came out and said that it was all BS, there's no other way or some other person who has some kind of tangible evidence that they can show, you know, how, what that could possibly be. I have no idea. You know, a contemporaneous notebook of plans on how to fake this. Like, and even then it would be like, oh, you made it last week. How can we even believe you, right? So it's like, there's no way to even prove one way or the other. So to me, it's like, ah, I'll entertain the idea. I'll listen to the skeptical take on things. But uh, I'm not really sort of one way or the other. You know what I mean? It's like a percentage of me thinks that this part that it could be true. And there's a percentage of me that thinks that it could all be BS. You know, I mean, I, I'm not one of those people that like refuses to possibly believe that it could be bullshit. 
Like if I think once you're in that realm, uh, with all due respect to anybody who feels that way, like you're, you're just, you're shutting down, you know, you're become, you're become a, it's become a religious thing now. You know what I mean? So to me, it's like, you weren't there <laughs> in the in the forests of wherever it happened. So it, you can't say for certain. Yeah, you can't say for certain one way or the other. So to say you absolutely know for a fact that this guy couldn't have made up the story. You just can't say no one can say that except for the people that were there. Um, you know, and to me, it's like I, it's it's such a drama with the guy who I forget his name. Someone can give me his cohort there. The one who like said that they faked it. Then like backpedaled on it. And I remember at the time that like back in April, when he said this to the filmmaker, I know that him and Travis had some crazy falling out. So it's like, you're getting really deep into the weeds here where it's like, well, you know, maybe this guy was really pissed at Travis and he just said that they made it up because he was just pissed at him at the time. And then he was like, Oh no, that I, I took this, argument we have about the illustrations in the book i've gone too far now like and i've shot you know what i mean so and the other part is like look at dude if someone this guy again i don't know his name so <laughs> i don't remember his name i forget his name but i think everyone knows who i'm talking about the guy who said oh i faked it with travis it's like when you say in 2021 i made all this up it's like, okay, dude, well, I can't believe anything you say. You know, I can't really put much stock in anything you say. Your credibility is shot. Because either you're lying now or, you, or you're saying you're lying then. So either way, you're, either way, you're, you're li you lied at some point, right, about something pretty big. So either you lied and made up this whole story back in the 70s or whatever, or you're lying now to – you know, I don't know, get some kind of a new level of fame or get revenge on Travis over some personal grudge. And it's like, ah, shit, at this point, I got to throw out everything you've said, sir, because you, you can't really be trusted either way. But to me, it's like there's a certain I guess what kind of irritated me was like um, was like this pearl clutching where it's like, how dare anyone question Travis about this? How could you? How could you? It's like, you know what, dude? He's just a guy who said that he was abducted by aliens and you, anyone has any right to question the story. And, and, you know, he, he's not infallible. He's not some kind of godlike figure. Um, he said a story and, and anyone has any right to sort of go, well, I don't know if I believe it or here's my take on why I don't think it's true. You know? So I really couldn't say, I don't have an opinion one way or the other, whether he made it up or not. It's like, I'll never, I, I can never possibly know. It's just, some story you know what i mean it's, it's just it's just some dude's story about being abducted by aliens um and because i never like got into the movie and the book i don't have that emotional attachment i think where it's like oh no if this isn't true my childhood's ruined it's like no i never watched the fucking movie i don't really care you know to me uh, as someone who kind of considers himself almost more of a sociologist of the field to me the most interesting part almost would be if that it was all bullshit because that would be like, that's amazing, dude. Like now I want to hear that story, Travis. Like I mm -hmm. want to hear how the fuck you made up this story. How did you do this? And how did you hold this? Like keep this secret for so long. Like to me, like I wouldn't be like, Oh no, get him. We got to run. We got to run him out of UFO world. It would be like, I, I would be like, wow, man, hats off to you. That's pretty wild that you pulled that off. Holy shit. 
Like I don't take, I, I wouldn't really feel insulted or hurt or, or, or uh, be angry that it was all BS. I'd be like, Oh, here's a, you know, that's fascinating in and of itself. That's, that's pretty crazy. Well, Tim, just to jump in for a minute. Um, I, I think, I think the thing that, that, bugs me about i like the the travis walton story is not like you know it's not what i would call like best case material um (laughs) there's like there's a lot of problems with it it like you know i i don't want i don't want to be like there's a specific narrative for ufo abductions that should happen or does happen but it doesn't fit the the common narrative um it, it like it strays wildly from it you know um I think the the thing that the thing that I hated about this was uh, one like like yeah nobody takes this story that seriously <laughs> um, and that's not to that's not to like shit on Travis or anything you know I think everybody sort of agrees he seems like a sincere nice guy who just you know says this thing happened to him and seems like he believes that it happened. But but the the like the the gotcha nature of the people who sort of engineered this thing is like unsettling and unsavory to me, as well as just like the pointlessness. Like nobody in in UFO land is hinging anything on the Travis Walton story at this point. So why why take up the space to do this unless you're just trying to put yourself over? to you know somebody else you know either the skeptic crowd or just to make a power move yeah the ufo crowd you know and it's just i mean i don't know it's just somebody trying to get over to me well it all started it all started on twitter you know it all started with this guy on twitter posting about this every day i thank god i don't look at twitter you know same here well thank god you don't yeah exactly it's pretty awful honestly it's gotten as bad as facebook um yeah well, there's a from what I understand, worse. there's a, an allegedly anonymous, well, an anonymous person allegedly in Australia. She says she's like a uh, just a, just a housewife who became interested and obsessed with this case. And that's her claim. Um, the biggest critique I've heard, in a sense, about a lot of this is like that it's an anonymous uh, writer who's taking who's you know, going after the Travis Walton case. And it's like, look, put your name on it. You know, I had a friend, I, I talked about again before, uh, said I talked about some people. It's like, I had a friend who was like vehemently like, like angry almost that it was an, like, that it was an anonymous person. And then I hadn't really given it much thought. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if they want to be anonymous, they want to be anonymous. But I kind of have come around a little bit to their thinking in a sense where it's like, well, shit, I wouldn't want some anonymous person coming after me. Like, at least if you're going to come after somebody, put your name on it, you know. Um, it's absurd. It's absurd. It's absurd. I mean, one, you're like, it's it's a character assassination, but, like, you can't even say who you are. And I, I don't know. It's just, right. That aspect of it's problematic. And, I mean, I think we probably agree more than maybe it sounded when I was talking just now, Chris. Because to me, it's like, yeah, I don't really, when all this came about, I never, no, Kind of like what you were saying. It's like no one was crying out for a revisiting of the Travis Walton story. Like it's pretty much, um, you know, it's pretty much a, it's pretty much just an old case. That, that, 
doesn't really just a freaky weird case from like the 70s and shit it has no bearing on um you know it has no bearing on on anything happening now at all or it was an isolated incident you know what i mean it wasn't like um trying I, I can't think of too many paranormal cases that sort of like you know, it's not like like, like 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 the Patterson Gimlin film, right? That might be one that you could kind of use as an it's like if someone came out, okay, that was like a pivotal moment in the history, you know, something like that, sure, or Roswell or whatever. But it's like, ah, again, it was just some dude. He said got abducted. He came back. Da, da, da. It's like, ah, you know, nothing really. Uh, I think it is pretty pivotal for the like alien abduction narrative though. It's one of the highest profile cases that everyone knows. They made the movie out of it. So it's kind of like a, you know, it's a, it's a high profile target that's going to make a skeptic really, um, really excited that they're, you know, taking down one of the, what they think is like the, the pillars of, uh, yeah, I suppose. I see where you're coming from. It's, it's in this weird in between state between, the contactees and what they said they saw and then the grays. Right. So it's in this weird in between state where he says, okay, I saw the little guys, but then I also saw the humans in the, in the spacesuits and all this type of shit. Well, and, and he talks about flying the ship, right? Like, uh, when, I mean, that's just, the whole thing is, is really unusual like as far i mean being gone for five days is is not typical there's just so much to it that does it's it's a weird one to pick on you know like you know people take shots at the betty and barney hill case a lot and that seems like the one that you'd want to go after right well the australian person has done both yeah. those cases so some interesting stuff yeah, there sure. but again it's like I, and i and contrary to the travis walton case i'm from new england so i have sort of a an emotional attachment to the Betty and Barney Hill case. It's like, I would be right. really disappointed if it turned out that was bullshit. But at the same time, if I'm going to be an honest observer of all this, I have to keep within my mind, the very real possibility that it could all be bullshit. Like if, if you, you know, if you do not allow for that possibility, I think you, I think you're being dishonest in the whole so even if you just say just one percent, even if you say, "Oh, just what?" I think just maybe there's a one percent chance it's bullshit. You, that's I can I, I'll I'll give you that. You can't say zero percent. Well, you're getting at something, Tim. I think like yeah, a lot of us are skeptical and still interested in this stuff, and like the difference between someone like us and the stereotypical skeptic who's just like annoying and, and just a bad stereotype. I mean, there's, there's, there's a difference. You can be skeptical and be interested in it sociologically, like you say, or, right, or, you know, like entertaining it or think, think about it. Another, it's not, it's not like we all haven't been skeptical anyway. Absolutely. And it goes the other way too. So the Australian person, um, you know, and anyone else who's sort of on board the, this new, it's been fake thing. It's like, if they, if they're 100% certain that it's fake, like then they're being dishonest. And like you said, like, ap- okay, so after it's fake, then what, like, what's the rest of the story? You know, a lot of hoaxes are really right. interesting and have way weirder shit behind the hoax. You like know- if it was, if it was a hoax, could it, the, the story, I bet you there would be a ton of fucking awesome stories evade it. Like how he had to slip through all these different situations and da, 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 da. I bet it would be like, 
is equal, you know, maybe not as fantastic as being taken aboard a flying saucer, but it would be a pretty awesome, like, Coen Brothers style story. Yeah, what do you really do for those missing days? And everything yeah, like what did you do for those missing days? How did you how did you cover your ass in different situations? Da, 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 da. I was like, that, that would be really interesting. I wouldn't be like, oh. But they always just stop right there, the skeptics. Like, they think that's it. Everything's been answered. But the really fascinating stuff is just right beyond that. What it seems to kind of hinge on is this $100,000 prize that I guess some magazine had. National Enquirer, baby. Yeah. They had said, well, if you come up with the best story, we'll give you the money. And and apparently they never got, if the, you know, they never actually got any money for it. They got like and, five grand for it. And then plus that $100,000 prize was something that Philip Class had talked about years and years and years ago. And that's nothing new. And it wasn't, so it wasn't like there was some earth shattering, oh, this just blows the case out of the water. I mean, it had already been looked into and it had already been explored. Yeah. It, exactly. I guess it yeah. was just new to whoever that Twitter user was. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's another part of it, sort of where it's like, I've tried to, I spent maybe like one evening looking at it and that was like it. And to me, it's like, if you've, uh, you know, with all due respect to anyone who spent more than one evening, but it's like you could you could spend two or three evenings. That's fine, whatever. But what I mean is, like, if you're if you're like obsessing about this, <laughs> still, it's like you gotta like get out of the bubble of UFO world because like nobody, this didn't even get out of the out of the bubble. Like there was, it's not like the media fucking covered this these new allegations against Travis Wall. It's like no, it was just. A, 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 a internecine feud among UFO people about a story that was like 40 plus years old. It was like, ah, shit. You know what it is? I think it's more of an indication of like, ever since this uh, report came out, it was a big fart in the wind that there's a little bit of like cabin fever in the UFO community. They got nothing to talk about. They got nothing to get excited about. Um, you know, everything was building up to that big report and then it came out. It was a big whiff. And now it's like, they don't know what, there's no carrot being dangled in front of them. And uh, you notice all of a sudden, all the videos, it used to be like, you would get a video every like fucking 10 days. There hasn't been a new video since the report came out that I can recall. There might've been one, but you know, there's, there's this deluge of videos or news stories or anything. It's like, this is, I, I was saying this before it happened, but like, I feel almost bad for like the people in c- contemporary UFO world. Cause also this happened too. I don't know. You guys aren't on Twitter. This was a big thing on Twitter was the Emma Woods case was rehashed big time on Twitter for like, yeah, a week. right. And uh, it was the same kind of thing as the Travis Walton thing. It was like people who hadn't heard about this story we're like, why am I not hearing about this now? It was like, I hate to be the old fart, but it's like, dude, I lived that. I was around 10 years ago when everyone it all broke. Like, Right. It's nothing new. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, just because you haven't heard about it doesn't mean that like that it's bullshit. Um, I you think know. the Emma Woods thing fits a little more in the like larger cultural moment now, maybe. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like I, I can see why that would get dredged up as sort of like, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's real scandalous. Absolutely. I was excited. I don't know if I was, I felt gratified that it has come back because I was among the people 
less vocal, but certainly supportive uh, at the time uh, with, you know, like Vaney and the late, great Jeff Ritzman and Carol Rainey, Tyler Coke, John, a lot of us were talking about it and trying to signal boost this story like 10 years ago. And it got completely smothered by the UFO community um, to the point. And then like, you look at it in the context of like this me too movement and this contemporary 2021 world we live in. And that's why I mean, it was like gratifying. It was like, well, finally so there are people are listening to this woman's story after all these years. That's a, that's a great, that's a great development. Um, you know, so I was happy that people gave her, gave her story. We're hearing her story finally for like the first time because it got completely smothered by the, uh, the good old boys in, in UFO world. Um, you know, but that, but the Emma Woods thing, Travis Walton thing, I think it's an overall sort of more emblematic of the fact that there's nothing happening um, in UFO world. And, and the fad is, I mean, we'll see. I don't want to, I don't want to wave the flag yet, but I'm starting to feel like maybe the fad is over. Like I think in whatever was 2017, I think we peaked out in June and, uh, you know, the air is coming out of this balloon. I don't think uh, I, 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 there were, I think there were a lot of people in May and June who were like, this is it. This is it. You know, oh, everything's going to change overnight. Uh, we're, we're living in the land of flying saucer, milk and honey, and everything's <laughs> going to change. And we're all going to be heroes. Oh, and, my God. Oh, everything's going to be awesome. And it's never going to be any better than this. This is the peak. This is the greatest. Well, I guess they're right. It would never be any better than that. Because that was, you know, oh, you're on 60 Minutes. You're on da 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 This is it. Flying saucers, everybody. Hey, folks, that's how fads work. That's yeah. how fads work, dude. And then you know what happened? The report came out, and then two weeks later, it's like, oh shit, a building collapsed in Florida. <laughs> now there's a Delta variant. Yeah, and maybe what's if going the- on with the Olympics, and now it's this Afghanistan thing. No one fucking cares about UFOs anymore, dude. Like that was that was that was like May and June. People have moved on to other stuff now. News cycle. What do you think about all that, Brent? You think that uh, this supposedly life changing? epic changing ufo information just kind of gets pushed into the background and they triangulate it on his position yeah i, I guess so yeah i don't, I don't know where <laughs> here's my analogy anyway. while, we wait, while we wait for brett this is Can you hear me now <laughs> there you go there you go okay. so this is kind of how i imagine the ufo thing might be it's not necessarily that it's gonna sl- go back down to like where it was before, but like, okay, you guys are kind of old like me. This is a really rough analogy, but when I was a kid, like no one took wrestling seriously. It was just like a joke. Right. It didn't ever appear on TV. It wasn't like on the news. It was never like, like it didn't get any, like it wasn't acknowledged beyond the world of like Saturday morning kids TV show. Then they had the huge boom in the late nineties and wrestlers were like everywhere. Wrestling was cool. Wrestling was like the coolest thing going, right? And it like lifted it up. It lifted its cultural cachet up to a certain level where all of a sudden wrestling was like, okay, it's still like the bastard stepchild of entertainment, but it's just a little bit more like now you'll see them on ESPN. Now you'll see the wrestlers like on uh, in commercials. Now you'll see like The Rock and John Cena in movies. Like it's a little bit higher up in the cultural 
mindset. I think that's kind of where we're at with UFOs. I don't think it'll ever go back to being totally like on the periphery, but I think it'll be a little bit more treated it with some, a little bit more respect, but not necessarily like uh, it not, <laughs> you know, wrestling isn't, isn't treated the same way as baseball or football, but at least it's not treated like roller derby. You know what I mean? It's like a little bit higher up, but it's not quite, I think that's like the rising tide lifted the ship and the ship's a little bit higher up than it was before all this happened. But it's only like, from a scale of one to 10, UFOs went from like a three to a six. <laughs> it's not much. Right, right. Yeah, right. And right. I think the people, and in back in May and June, when all this was going on, I think people were like, it's going to fucking stay at nine forever. It's like, <laughs> no, dude, it's not going to stay at nine forever. It's going to go back down to six. But just be happy that it didn't go all the way back down to three. Like you moved up from three to six. You can't stay at nine, but you can go back down yeah. to six. That's kind of my idea of what maybe we're seeing right now. That's what Jacques Vallée talks about in the Invisible College a lot is like the control mechanism of like the flaps and the media attention and then the studies and the skepticism that is this like constant back and forth that is gradually moving things, but it's gradually doing it by that back and forth. Yeah, like two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. Go ahead, Brett. All right. Well, you know, I like I said, I've been 54 and a, or tried to say 54 and a half years in the field. And I I really don't get too excited anymore by these cycles and developments. And I've, I've been hearing for years, it's going to break. It's going to break. You just wait about by August or you know November, you're going to see a big change. And this goes on year after year after year. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting, at least to hear uh, some of this talk from government sources about, you know, there is something acknowledging, at least there is something there, but they're not going to come out and just say ET, you know, this, uh, maybe it's a foreign country. It could be an, at least they're saying now a threat to national security. And I remember that was a, a no, no. That's how they got uh, the project blue book, uh, you know, dismissed from its duties by the Condon committee, you know, back in 69 was they had done the two year study and, they said that there was no uh, evidence there was a threat to national security, no, no concrete evidence that these were ET visitors. Well, that means no funding, right? Right. So, you know, it, uh, it shut it down. And, you know, and so, of course, with this uh, whole Pentagon study and stuff uh, that came up, you know, that was a kind of a new development and uh, actually an interest and, and, and showing the government was looking at it. But certainly it's not going to come down. Uh, it's going to take something mighty powerful for this to be anything more than just uh, what mainstream ufology wanted, which is a very belief-ridden field, you know. And uh, I, I was always kind of disappointed in, in uh, 1987 when, when uh, you know, the, there was Whitley Strieber with his communion came out and there was a lot of buzz then about abductions, you know. Which was, uh, which became kind of a big shift, I think, for ufology, mainstream ufology, to really um, touch that because originally the contactee thing was was taboo, and uh, and then you know Strictly, Willie Strictly uh, had founded the Communion Foundation, and uh, Bud Hopkins with his book Intruders founded the Intruders Foundation, and a lot of other people here in the United States and England and other places founded these uh, 
these groups with, you know, therapists and people to try to talk to experiences who were suffering traumatic reactions and get their stories. And, and um, I remember reading, seemed like both uh, Hopkins and Strieber getting like 4,000 letters from experiences. And uh, what I always wondered was, you know, we got all these new cases and uh, why aren't, uh, why aren't, why aren't we hearing more about it? You know, they're getting all this information. Uh, they're being flooded. The floodgates have been opened. And uh, this seems like a, 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 a for invest, you know, for an investigative body, uh, for the science, um, this is, uh, they need to survey the data, find all the commonalities. And instead, we kept hearing more about uh, things like, uh, you know, Roswell, New Mexico, and uh, what it could have meant, a crash saucer or um, the, uh, you know, a lot of the already known cases that have been uh, talked about over and over and over. Let's, you know, let's, uh, and then, so a few years ago when I got to volunteer with uh, the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters or Experiences, uh, I, you know, I, I like that idea because I thought that was something that needed to be done to, you know, do at least a statistical work up on, on experiences. And they did over 3000 and it came out with a, a book in 2018 um, with a lot of statistical breakdown on what people were claiming and such, uh, you know, and it was just done. find out what the, all these people believed and, and, and what they were claiming to experience and give us a, at least some kind of an overview. And, uh, you know, to do it as a social scientist or an anthropologist would, or even the uh, folklorists and mythologists, I mean, at least they ask all the questions. In, in mainstream ufology, it pretty much is like they're looking for confirmation bias. They're only trying to confirm a lot of times their own beliefs, what they want to hear. And if you, you are being interviewed by someone, say from MUFON or in the past NICAP, and you had, you had uh, went outside the box and talked about something besides a physical description of a craft, maybe you, you know, talked about seeing an alien, maybe there was a message or not, or maybe you were abducted or, uh, and then of course the repeater element, you had more than one experience and Lo and behold, then if you talked about a cryptid or a poltergeist manifestation in your home afterwards or developing psychic abilities, um, that was just dismissed. And of course, if the shoe is on the other foot, if you're a cryptozoologist or you're a parapsychologist or, you know, and you strayed outside of uh, your particular area of expertise, the field of uh, cryptozoology or, you know, and you've started telling about seeing a flying saucer land and a, maybe a book Bigfoot come out of it, which there are cases, you know, of that sort of thing, then they wouldn't want to handle your report. If you just described the Bigfoot, it would have been okay. Yeah. The Stan Gordon type stuff that he talked about. Yeah. And then of course uh, your own Tim Renner and Joshua Cutchin with their, uh, you know, their two volumes of uh, where the footprints end and all those other weird mixed high strange you know cases with a historical background just like um 
you know, Jacques Vallée's uh, passport to Magonia in 1969, that was something that the mainstream didn't want. And then the following year, of course, with Kiel and his Operation Trojan Horse. And, and uh, from there. So, um, yeah, it's uh, and on the Betty and Bonnie Hill thing, I, I by the way, I knew Betty Hill. I lived in originally up in Hullable, Maine, and she was just uh, about 100 miles down uh, Interstate 95 down in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I got to spend quite a bit of time with her, and I've since become acquainted with uh, her niece, uh, uh, Kathy Martin. And, of course, she's today a hypnotherapist and a UFO researcher. And one of her areas of specialties is, of course, abduction cases. And, I, you know, I found the whole crossover psychic thing, repeater thing in, in that case. It just it's one of those resurfacing things. Uh, uh, I spent some time uh, in uh, Betty's old hometown and in, uh, in Kingston, New Hampshire, and got to meet uh, Kathleen, uh, Kathleen's uh, Martin's mother um, there in Kingston, uh, who felt her house was haunted. And then later talking with uh, Kathleen, she felt it was related to uh, to the UFOs because just when that haunting started, she said uh, she and her mother had, you know, had an experience with a craft that landed across the road and they both felt they had been abducted. And then uh, all this uh, doors opening and closing by themselves and uh, Kathleen told a story about uh, and her five-year-old son, then five-year-old, uh, was in one of the bedrooms at night. She heard a ruckus, and she went in, and there was a, a floating orb in the room. And uh, she quick, quickly grabbed the child up and took the child to her room the rest of the night. And then there was another incident where uh, uh, I think a bunch of coat hangers flew out of a closet. Uh, her, her husband at the time so um but you know betty herself uh did become a on the other hand a repeater uh i know that i went out sky watching with her and uh there were things you know they were conventional explanations um we spent about uh, three or four days together and uh we went sky watching and i we both kept a separate uh, journal. And then at the end of that time, we swapped and read what each of us was describing. And, and uh, one was where we had come upon a, uh, a tower with a light on it. And Betty had said, oh, this has never been here before. And I was, uh, you know, I said, well, uh, yeah, it's, it's here now. And so we got in the car and we left and we, I had a compass on the seat between us. And uh, anyway, in her report, she wrote how uh, which was the light on the tower. And uh, then there was uh, how the, we were riding along and uh, the needle of the compass was just moving all around. And uh, then it stopped. Well, I knew the explanation for that. It was bouncing around because we were on a, a gravel road and then we come out to a smooth, tired highway and it stopped, you know, um, but uh, there are other, you know, the other things, I think the original encounter and, and, uh, and uh, some of the other people who were involved, I think that it just, uh, it was something that really kind of affected her 
uh, Betty, but she was uh, one of the nicest people you could ever meet. And I enjoyed my, my interactions and stuff. And, you know, um, but uh, she was one of the, you know, the classic repeaters that you follow. She always warned people about that. Sure. Uh, and, and reporters had also described going out to her so-called landing area near Kingston and, and observing um, what they knew were conventional aircraft, which she was trying to make out to be UFOs. So, but There's... Again, you know, <laughs> I think sometimes they were, but it's hard to tell. I was first time, one of the first times I visited her, um, there was a local investigator who worked with Ray, Ray Fowler. And she left the room and he goes, hey, psst, Brent, uh, you know, watch out now. Some of her stories she tells, uh, you know, she's prone to seeing conventional aircraft and thinking they're UFOs. But she, he said uh, she has a sighting now uh, that I'm getting details because some other people have also seen the same thing. So, you know, just a word of caution. So. Yeah, there's so much to the uh, Betty and Barney Hill case. Uh, there's a lot. Um, you could almost you could make you could make the whole mind control uh, aspect of it too. I mean, there's that. I as think well. that stuff's pretty compelling. Yeah, it is pretty compelling. Um, Tim, real quick, what's up with this uh, Nashville being invaded by a fleet of UFOs? What? Oh, yeah. uh, I don't know. Some guy made that took that video. I mean, uh, he said, I guess it was near the airport. It actually made me think of you guys because it was Nashville. Um, Man, we could have drove right over there. It was uh, Friday night, I think. At two in, well, Saturday morning at two in the morning, he said. So I don't know. You can see the video on the Coast to Coast website. I'm, you know, it's kind of like we were talking about with the Travis Walton thing. It's kind of like, all right, here's a guy's video. Uh, right. Make of it what you will. Well, they might be starting to arrive, you know, for the Strange Realities Conference. <laughs> yeah. Entirely possible. Yeah. But it was near the airport, he said. And someone said that uh, there's like big lights there and the bats are attracted to the lights. So they think it might have been bat. I mean, I don't know. That's what someone from the area suggested. So it's hard to really, it's hard to say, you know, it's hard. The bats have been pretty crazy. Yeah. So. That was what one person suggested. I don't know. Uh, I don't. I mean, I don't know. You know, it's uh, your classic UFO video. Make of it what you will, pretty much, kind of thing. If we could uh, establish contact at the Strange Realities Conference, that would be pretty. When awesome. we do, when we do, yeah, yeah. we can do it. So we you have guys a star are- seed in our midst here. You can you can put out the the signal with your your brain powers, right? That's true. Yeah. Sir feels the star uh, SR seed. Yeah. According to two tests, according to two tests. So we're going to take another the third one one's here. coming up. The third one is coming up. Yeah. Uh, that's for Patreons though. So, um, you guys are both going to be here, Brent and Tim, you guys are going to be both, uh, with us here in Nashville, October 15th to 17th. Uh, what are you guys going to be talking about? We'll start with you, Brent. All right. Well, I'll be talking about uh, UFOs and the high strangeness aspects and uh, all that weird crossover stuff and, um, you know, about how actually prevalent it is, but it often gets, dis- you know, dismissed by the by the mainstream. Um, and, uh, you know, um, what I like about the. Uh, about the conference, you guys were all over the place. 
different uh, different things being talked about and discussed. But everybody there was a uh, a real friendship and uh, an acceptance. You know, there wasn't any uh, any uh, anyone yelling at someone for disagreeing with them or whatever. <laughs> and you know, I, I like the uh, I like how it uh, operated. But uh, that's what I'll be talking about, uh, talking about, uh, you know, how I got into it with uh, the field uh, in the way I did, thanks to suggestions from John Keel. And uh, I followed him and Jacques Vallée and and such, taking the road less traveled. (laughs) Absolutely. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And uh, Mr. Banal? I will be um, talking about, oh, yeah, it's Kiki. What's up? I had the Zoom turned off. Um, or have the thing minimized. Uh, I'll be talking about when it's hard to explain, but it's like sort of like what happens when a mystery gets solved mm-hmm. and how communities react to that kind of thing. Um, it's a bit of a shallow pool of stuff. There's not that many mysteries that have been solved. So, um, but there's a couple like the forest Fen treasure and um, the, uh, the golden state killer. Those are two pretty big mysteries that have been solved that had a big uh, online sort of community and sort of a look at what, how people react. And, and, uh, and you know, and maybe I'll, I think I'm, I'm kind of just still kicking around a lot in my head. And maybe I'll take that and sort of extrapolate it into like, okay, what would, what would happen? What will, what might happen if like, say Adam Sane shot a Bigfoot, like what would be, <laughs> Like what, what, what could we, would happen? What yeah. would happen? What could we expect? You know, in, in that situation, based on what we've seen in the past, and okay. uh, yeah, like spoiler alert, you wouldn't want to be the guy Adam who shot the Bigfoot because like they'll people <laughs> will they'll dig into like every aspect every aspect of your life where <laughs> they'll be like they'll be like, well, you know, he got arrested for tax evasion back in 1983. So guys probably full of shit, that kind of thing. Not that you did, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, if you ever have any, if you ever any dirty laundry, don't shoot a Bigfoot because immediately it would be like, that guy was arrested for stealing from recycling centers back in 95. So who knows what it's like, oh shit, that's getting dredged up again. So you, so you don't want to be the man that killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot. <laughs> that's a whole different story, but yeah. <laughs> So that's kind of it. I'm kicking that around. I got to really put like a lot of uh, work into it. So I'm a little intimidated by the idea in a sense, because it's like this nuanced thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have enjoyed sort of tracking the responses to these things. So uh, I think that'll be kind of fun to present to people. And I'll probably have a lot of like screen captures from like, you know, uh, when these things happened and stuff, because the initial like, 12 to 24 hours is like exhilarating it's uh people really like lose their mind and shit and and then then they go crazy because there's no all the information like shuts down no one you don't get any and then the, the news cycle takes over and gets really slow so 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 uh kiki dombrowski is joining us she's gonna uh, do the patreon part with us tonight but um kiki you're gonna be speaking at strange realities as well so what are you gonna be talking about hi Hi, I wanted to say hi first. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, uh, what am I talking about, tarot? I'm going to talk about tarot. I think that I am, um, okay. I think I want to talk about gateways in tarot. And um, oh. there's this belief that there are like these gateway cards and sort of like access points <laughs> to esoteric knowledge. And 
um, maybe talk a little bit about spirit of place within uh, tarot. And um, my focus is really on the Rider Waite Smith deck, but I've been looking at a few other modern decks as well. And Michael Hughes is trying to get me to look at the Marseille tarot, which I don't, I don't know. I'm a little nervous about that one, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about being in Nashville with y'all. I'm really looking yeah. forward to hanging out in person. And uh, Chris Corey, uh, hopefully you're going to make it down here. I'm still planning on it, everybody. Are you going to have a little uh, little table, maybe display some of your collectibles? See what, what kind of goodies I come up with, but uh, I, I should have something fun. You can get some glass display cases. Uh, I'll bring something down uh, for sure, maybe a couple things. But uh, looking forward to seeing the talks and seeing the sights. Absolutely. Awesome. It's going to be great to have everyone together. All right, uh, but not, Tim, but all, uh, please give everybody where they could find you and any any episodes of Banal of America coming up. Uh, somebody was asking me that the other day. I'm feeling really close to getting back on the saddle and broadcasting again soon. Come back. They need you. Yeah, I've got like a list of people I want to talk to. Like two weeks ago, I was sitting there and it was like, it was like a Saturday and I'm like, leaning on myself, I'm like, what I should do is book a whole bunch of guests and blah, blah, blah. Like what I'm probably going to do is just sit on the couch and watch baseball and drink beer. And that's pretty much what happened. So it's like, I'm right on the, right on the cusp. If the wind blows the right way, I'll, oh. I'll, I'll reach out and start booking people. But it's one of those things you got to get the ball rolling. Uh, somebody actually asked today about Jack Brewer and his new book. And it was like, Oh, I hope so. Cause he doesn't have any shows lined up yet. Yeah. yeah. And me and Jack are like super good friends. And so I'm like, well, maybe that'll help me get, shake the rust off as if I have Jack on to talk about his book. And then once I book one guest, then it's kind of like, then in my mind, I can start booking the rest of the guests and shit. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping soon ish. I mean, shit like August is pretty much almost over. So maybe yeah. we come back like Labor Day weekend or something like that. I could see happening. So, but we'll see. And Brent, uh, tell everybody where they can find alternate perceptions. All right. Alternate perceptions at apmagazine.info. And uh, we have a monthly issue that comes out on the first of each month. And we have little interviews and uh, book reviews and different articles. And I have a regular column called Reality Checking. And my friend, Dr. Greg Little, often has a uh, feature called Accio Trek, dealing with uh, ancient mysteries, uh, ancient sites, uh, Native American Indian mounds and earthworks and such. He, in fact, wrote an encyclopedia on uh, such things all across the United States and uh, with pictures, illustrations and descriptions, where to go and what to see. And uh, it's quite comprehensive. Uh, he's, it's already in its second edition. Oh, nice. What's the full title of that? Encyclopedia of um, Indian mounds and ancient earthworks, I think is, or maybe it's ancient Indian mounds and earthworks. <laughs> cool. Okay, well, cool. Uh, we want to remind everybody, uh, as we always say, October 15th through the 17th uh, here in Nashville and online. Tickets are limited to the for the in-person event. Uh, there's about 40, and there's about, as of this moment, about 20 left. So get those as soon as you possibly can. And um, But we are really going to be pushing the $30 online tickets that is available for everybody so please um unlimited yeah that is unlimited well i mean i had to put a cap on it i put 500 so 
there's you know a good amount to sell there so that is going to get you access to all three days of the conference you just won't have that in-person thing and also too, vaccine uh cards are proof of a negative covid test um are going to be asked for at the door please yeah unfortunately that's the world we live in now so it is what it is but uh that's something we feel that we need to do so all right, uh, I think we're going to just uh, tell everybody about Patreon. If you want to join us in uh, our third, in my third Starseed test, which is coming this up. This is to find out where you're in from. In a few minutes, what? yeah. I've got yeah. The, like I, the 23andMe thing, you know, I sent away. It's got the pie chart. <laughs> it's got like 57% Starseed, 29% Nordic, and then the rest is some reptilian mixture, but we'll save that for the patrons. Right, right. If you want to join us every week uh, for these special patron episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal and join the International Association of Conspiranormalists. And for $10 a month, you get to join us in our Mystic Crew Hangouts, which all these lovely people have been able to do. And... Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of them or three of them have actually done presentations on that. We do presentations and give you access to some of the, our favorite guests of conspiracy normal every month at the mystic crew hangout on zoom. That's for the $10 and up people. And for $20, if you're very generous and you want to really believe and fund the future of conspiracy normal, you can join the ancient circle of strange realities, which by speaking at the conference, uh, yes, uh, everyone here and Chris's honorary member too will be a a member of so there's all high initiates here uh that's for the $20 and up people patreon.com slash conspiranormal all right guys thank you so very much and uh we will talk to you next week on conspiranormal purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.